an opportunity in front of us that may or may not come forth to share our building with a community that has to leave theirs. They're not leaving because they're, they want to. They're leaving because circumstances require them to do that. And so we have been, over the last several weeks, preparing, preparing ourselves for that possibility, asking ourselves who would we like to be as a community if this space is uh, shared with another spiritual community. And they would have their own services and their own classes and their own times. And we might not cross paths with them often, but we would cross paths. We would have community picnics and concerts and, and classes and things that we would do together so that we get to know one another. So who would we like to be? So the first week, we talked about the subject of uh, hospitality and what does it mean to offer hospitality? How is hospitality different than entertaining someone? And we learned that hospitality, that when you're entertaining, you're worried about whether you have the right towels in the bathroom and whether your, the dish you cooked came out with any crunchy edges, that when you are entertaining, your guests will leave the house and they'll say, oh, don't they have a lovely house? Oh, did you see those fine linens? Oh, what did you think? Wasn't that just a delicious dish? When you're entertaining, people leave with an awareness of you. When you offer hospitality, people leave with an awareness of themselves. They feel welcomed into the most intimate part of your life when it's not the best towels. And maybe the casserole didn't turn out just right, but... Boy, those people, they were so kind and so welcoming. We, one of the things that we talked about was when someone isn't going to be home and you're staying with them and they say, here, here are the keys. Make yourself at home. I won't get there for an hour or two. Just call me if you need anything. There's a trust and a comfort and a familiarity to hospitality that is very, very different than entertaining. And so we talked about how we can be hospitable. And last week, we talked about the value of authenticity, what it means to be authentically who you are, to author, which comes from the same word, to author your own life, to author your own response, which means we don't always say what we think the other person wants us to say. We author our response according to our own sovereign heart, according to what we know is true for us. There was a question afterwards about authenticity and our ability to choose not to speak. But sometimes in our most, uh, most authentic moments, when we're being really clear with ourselves, we know we're not in the right frame of mind to say what's going on up here, Right? We haven't quite made it, the short 18 inches from here to here, so that we can speak from our hearts. We're still in our head, and we're speaking, and it. We would, if we were to speak, it wouldn't be kind. That is not lacking in authenticity. That is wisdom at work. That is wisdom at work, to know when you're ready to present your authentic self in the world. And today, 
we're going to talk about the spirit of generosity and what generosity actually is. But I want to start by uh, giving you something to consider. And we as a community are people of many, many different faiths. We have people here who are Christian, who are pagan, who are Jewish, who are Buddhist, who are, who are Sufi, who are Muslim. We have many different people who come together to celebrate. And so when I tell a story or I use a particular word, remember that you have the freedom to use whatever word is in your heart. And remember that you don't have to agree. My job is really not. Diff it's a little different than some other sacred spaces where uh, the person who stands up here has the job of teaching you how it is. That is not my job, thank God, because <laughs> I wouldn't be here. That is not my job. My job is to encourage you to think for yourself, to cultivate the seeker in you that asks questions and says, do I agree with that? Do I not agree with that? How does that feel? So I want to talk about the very first line in Genesis. We talked about it last week, and I told you about my friend Rabbi Joel, who encouraged us to look very carefully at every word, because every word in scripture of any kind, from all faiths, every word has value. So we talked about what, what it would be if we took that first line in Genesis, which says, God created the heavens and the earth, and we looked at it carefully and said, well, first of all, who's this God? Who is this God that created? Oh, in the beginning, God created so this is the God that was at the beginning, the beginning of what? Well, we're not quite sure, are we? We're not sure what in the beginning means. In the beginning of where we are now is our assumption. So I want to go to the God part. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we hear that God created the land and God created the water. That God actually created the potential for all things. But when we hear about the water, it's particularly interesting because if we go back to the original Hebrew, the words are ruah, Elohim. And ruah in the Hebrew language is a feminine noun. That means spirit. It's a feminine noun. And Elohim is a plural for feminine, is a feminine plural. So we are talking now, God created the heavens and the earth. And the spirit of God breathed across the water. Is that the same God? And if it is, why is there a feminine attached to it? Because most of us have been taught to think of God in a masculine form, haven't we? That word God is different than goddess. God is a male. So, so the question that comes to mind is, well then if, God, if the God who created the world was feminine, why did Jesus talk to the Father? Why was there so much reference to the Father? Well, how many mothers do we have in this room? How many mothers by the time their sons or daughters were adults, had told them the story of the day they were born, how they came to be. An adult 
would have heard the story of his life. And the story for this man's life was that he was born of immaculate conception, that his mother did not join with a man to bring him forth. So she would have taught him. He would not have said mother because he had a mother. He would have spoken about his father because that's how he would have been taught. My idea, that's what I think, doesn't have to be your idea. And, and to be clear, I want to say to you that I actually, in my own personal belief, do not believe that there is a gender associated with God. I don't believe there is a masculine or a feminine God. I believe that these are words that were used by humankind to describe something and that there is an energy that is the divine and that it's our human minds that want to make it like us. But it's important to look at the history of who was writing and how it was written. It's also important to understand that in biblical times, if reference to power had been given to women, it would have gone against the Jewish culture, the, the way the Jewish culture taught. So I simply want to invite you into the idea of mother because we think differently of mother than we do of father. We think of mother as warm and nurturing and comforting. We think of mother as nourishing. We think of mother as patient. We think of mother in a very different way. We also think of our mothers as fierce, don't we? They're fiercely protective of us sometimes. We think of mother differently. In fact, there's a little story written about that I want to share with you, and it goes like this. Whoops, I got to get the front page of it. Maybe I'll share it with you. Okay, in a mother's womb, there were two babies. One asked the other, do you believe in life after delivery? The other replied, why, of course, there has to be something after delivery. Maybe we're here to prepare ourselves for what will be later. Nonsense, said the first. There is no life after delivery. What kind of life would that be? The second said, I don't know, but there'll be more light than there is here. Maybe we'll walk on these legs and eat from our mouth. Maybe we'll have other senses that we can't understand right now. The first replied, that is absurd. Walking is impossible and eating with our mouths, ridiculous. The umbilical cord supplies nutrition and everything we need, but the umbilical cord is so short. Life after delivery is logically excluded. The second insisted, well, I think there is something and maybe it's different than it is here. Maybe we won't need this physical cord anymore. Nonsense, said the first. And moreover, if there is life, then why has no one ever come back from there? <laughs> Delivery is the end of life. And in the afterlife, there is nothing but darkness and silence and oblivion, and it takes us nowhere. Well, I don't know, said the second. But certainly we will meet mother, and she will take care of us. The first replied, mother? You actually believe in mother? That's laughable. If mother exists, then where is she now? <laughs> the second said, she is all around us. We are surrounded by her. We are of her. 
It is in her that we live. Without her, this world would not and could not exist. Said the first, well, I don't see her. So it's only logical that she doesn't exist. To which the second replied, sometimes when you're in silence and you focus and you really listen, you can perceive her presence and you can hear her loving voice calling down from above. So we feel that loving presence, don't we? It's an interesting story because it's very in line with how we see ourselves here at Unity, that we live within the wholeness of the divine. We are within the wholeness of the divine, not separate ever at any time, that we are cared for and that we are also one with the holy. And so when we step forward into that belief and we think about mothers and who they are and what they provide, when we are within the mother, we have everything we need, don't we? It could be said, right, that we have enough. Yes? So if we live within the divine, then it makes sense that we have enough. Yes? You're nodding. How many of you feel like you have enough? Some of you. It's interesting if you look at the, at the etymology of the word enough. The word enough comes out of Old English, and its etymology means sufficient quantity. But if you break the word down, there's actually two sections to the word, and the first section of the word means with or together. Sufficient quantity with or together. Most of us don't think of the word enough that way. Most of us, if we say we have enough, we say, I have enough. Or I don't have enough. And we believe that our resources are somehow limited. Our society works in such a way that we have created an illusion that there is not enough. Because Enough is quantified by what is in my sphere of existence rather than what is in the world, than what we have with each other and together. Enough is quantified only by my definition. And because of that, we have bought into the illusion that there is not enough to go around, that the world is without what it needs. But what we understand about the holy by any name you choose is that there is inherently enough. So what happens when we let go of the idea that enough is in what I own? Are there enough cars on the planet? Probably. How many of us have two or sometimes three ways to get ourselves places, just in our country alone? Is there enough food on the planet? How much food do we throw away? How much do we overconsume? Is there enough food to keep people, every person on this planet alive? Science has already proven that is a fact. 
There is enough food. There is enough transportation. There are enough resources. But because we buy into the fact that this is enough instead of this is enough, things don't get moved around where they're needed. It is an illness in our society that we need to correct. And it begins with us. It begins right here in this room today, right now. This doesn't belong to everybody out there. This is your assignment. This change of mind happens right here, right now. And can it contagiously move? Yes. Yesterday, I had the chance to say to some folks who were touring our building from High Plains, the other church that may be coming over, I had a chance to say to them, in ancient times when they built temples, the grandfather started and the son picked up, the, the son picked up and the next son and the next son. And it might be 150 years before the temple was built and three generations who did it. If we start today and we teach our children, the children that we influence, the people around us, will we see ourselves, our world come to a place of enough in our lifetime? Maybe, but likely it will be in lifetimes farther down the road that our society shifts enough. It takes a certain amount of time to shift, doesn't it? If we don't start today, will it shift? No. It is ours to begin the shift, and it is ours to hold so strong and so stable that there is enough to move our resources out into the world to begin to create that, that our sons and our daughters and our grandchildren will be influenced by how we live and will live differently. So when we look at the idea of mother God, and it is again, an idea, not a, not a black and white. And we recognize that there is enough and we begin to change our picture. We want to change our picture. How do we do that? We do it through the spirit of generosity. The spirit of generosity is the invitation to share, to share one thing. Share something. Share your sweet voice if you sing. Share your cooking if you cook. I had a crazy week this week, and Deb made me a casserole, which was just such a, thank you, such a sweet gift. And I, I put it in the refrigerator, and um, Saturday night, Ryan brought home all of his teenage friends. And we fed, they came in, and the first words out of their mouth were, what's to eat? Oh my gosh, this casserole, there's plenty. And everybody in my house was fed, even guests were fed through the spirit of generosity. The spirit of generosity says, how do I take what I have and share? How do I notice what is needed and offer? How do I step out? So when another community comes to join us in this space that we believe is enough for us, can we open our arms and see how enough this space is for two communities? Can we open our arms and notice 
how many plates and spoons and forks we have. Can we notice that there's half of the week, at least, that the building doesn't get used? Can we notice how much space we've spread out into and claimed as ours? And you know how you scoot your clothes in the closet so someone else can hang theirs in when they come and stay with you? Can we condense our closets? Both physically and spiritually. Can we make room to mother a new way of being in our spiritual world? A a place where people of many faiths can gather and worship in their own ways. Can we mother that as the community that unity is? Can we breathe life into that vision? And can we care for what is happening here with generosity of spirit? That's our great work. Our great work is to, to be hospitable, to make people feel their presence is a gift. Our great work is to be authentic with ourselves first and then with others. And our great work is to be generous of spirit. And I promise you, my friends, as we are generous, we will see how bountiful and abundant our lives are. I have some quotes to close with. Michael Bernard Beckwith said, there is enough for everyone. If you believe it, if you can see it, if you act from it, it will show up for you. And that is the truth. Sue Monk Kidd said this, the symbol of goddess gives us permission. She teaches us to embrace the holiness of every natural, ordinary, sensual, dying moment. Patriarchy may try to negate body and flee earth with its constant heartbeat of death, but goddess forces us back to embrace them, to take our human life in our arms and clasp it for the divine life it is, the nice, sanitary, harmonious moment as well as the painful, dark, splintered ones. If such a consciousness truly is set loose in the world, nothing will be the same. It will free us to be in the sacred body, on a sacred planet, in a sacred communion with all. It will infect the universe with holiness. We will discover the divine deep within the earth and within the cells of our body, and we will love her with all our hearts, and all our souls, and all our minds. And I want to say about that to our men, do not hear the word patriarchy personally. Patriarchy is a cultural condition. It is not a male weakness or a problem. It's a cultural condition. And many of us as women engage in patriarchy as well. We are inviting ourselves into a different way of being. Finally, Stephen Richards says... If it is about education, then all who are college graduates should be wealthy. But we know there are many highly educated, highly qualified, and highly experienced people who just manage to scrape by, if at all. There is something greater at work.